Greetings and welcome to the What's the PhD podcast, where we attempt to demystify the scientific PhD process for folks going through the rigors of pursuing a PhD, folks thinking about getting a PhD, or even people who simply clicked on this by mistake, <laughs> or as we like to call them, our key demographic. <laughs> so you can check out the website associated with us at realphdeal.com. And we would love it if you email us at our group email, phdealmail at gmail.com. Check out the show notes uh, on whatever pod app you're using for that information. And uh, feel free to send us any comments, criticisms, food rations, uh, excess jewelry bacon, that you may have. <laughs> uh, we have requests for bacon. And uh, most importantly, any questions. We would be happy to take a stab at any questions you send our way and do our best to try and answer them. Finally, a quick disclaimer. The following podcast reflects only our views and in no way is meant to represent any of the views of institutions or organizations that we are associated with. Also, we admit that we don't have the perfect answer or the correct answer to every question, which is, I mean, really a tough thing to admit, but that's true. <laughs> so uh, take everything with a kilogram of salt. By the way, we are all science or P uh, engineering based PhDs. So our shows show will obviously be concentrated mostly towards that direction. But with all of that being said, let's go on to the episode. So I'm Elias and I am joined by nuclear materials scientist Liz. What's up? The materials and deposition and battery wizard Rajan. What what? And the spiritual leader, and some would say the <laughs> Ayatollah of the PhD podcast. Oh my god. Luis. How are What's you, Lou? Uh thank you for the amazing uh <laughs> amazing bio. Yeah. That's wonderful. I really channeled my inner Luis to get to this bio. So <laughs> <laughs> So today we are talking about career trajectories for STEM PhDs. It's obviously one of the most important topics that we could talk about. It's something that every graduate student is concerned about, or at least thinking about or planning ahead of. And uh, we'd like to know more information to make more informed decisions. And typically, you know, if you're doing a, if you're in a graduate program, we usually think of career trajectories as two roads diverging in the woods, uh, also known as academia and industry. But it's uh, way more complicated than Robert Frisk, uh, Robert Frost, I should say, would, <laughs> would have you think. Yeah, Either would, Robert, would be wrong. <laughs> you think? <laughs> no, I mean, either, so, either it's more complicated than either think it is, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, and there's a lot to unpack here. So uh, first, I'd like to raise this question to the panel, which is how do you think, you know, when someone is still in grad school, uh, before we get into the different uh, opportunities out there, how do you think it is the best possible way to prepare for your next career steps, even while you're still pursuing your PhD? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I, I got one. I, I think... I mean, you don't want to start badgering your advisor right away with like, what's, what's going to be my job after this? Because you, you haven't even gotten to your research yet, but it's not a bad idea to go to, there's always like career fairs going on for, um, you know, for students, uh, whatever institution you're going to be at. And it's, 
as a grad student, even if the first year or second year, you're nowhere near finished with your degree, but it's not a bad idea to, to go to these fairs, start talking to people, get used to talking to these people. Who knows? You may see them, you know, in another uh, four-ish years or, or five years when you're finished with your PhD, and then, you know, they'll remember you. It's, it's not a bad idea to start talking to them already. Find out, you say, oh, I'm, I'm studying this. How would this, uh, are you looking for, for me, I, would be, I, I was saying, I'm starting to get into nanocomposites and, and different materials within my material science program. And they, you know, I would get feedback like, oh, we're, we have people working on that in this division of our company. And we find this, this area kind of exciting and, and getting big. So it's, it's good to kind of figure out what you're doing or what you plan to do, because of course it can very much change, uh, has some kind of purchase in reality once you leave the, the cushy confines of, of PhD life that you, you know, what you're, what you're working on can eventually uh, translate over to, to an actual job. Of course, academia is, is different story. You're kind of selling yourself and your research, but if you're, especially if you're looking for a job in industry, it's good to know what's out there and what they're looking for and what matches well with your degree. And, and just be upfront about it to say, look, I'm, I'm a first year, but I, I want to get a jump on things and they'll really appreciate that. I think I, when I was talking to them, they seemed to really like that. They were like, Oh, that's great. You're doing this. Like, here's what we're looking for. Here's the kind of, and on top of all this, you get to take home some nice swag. You get like tons of pens, <laughs> sure. USB drives and everything else. So it's that, that, that's, I think what you should start doing uh, right off the bat. And it doesn't take much to do this. Of course, you have to wear a suit and nice clothes and stuff like that. But, but besides that giant price to pay, you're 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 just gonna you're just gonna win from the situation. I think uh, that, that I think that's a for me that would be like a first. I think um, one thing I'd like to add to that is um, so yeah, so internships are totally a thing for PhD students. Um, so you know, like these career fairs and seeing if there are um, like co-ops even or just summer internships that you could potentially apply to and participate in. I think that could be a very helpful step in you understanding what jobs are out there. Um, and even if you don't like your job at that company, you get exposure to a company and understand what they do. And it's an experience, right? So you get to figure out um, kind of if you like that sort of work, if you don't, and then you can, um, if you do that early on in your PhD or grad school or wherever you're at, um, you have you kind of get a flavor for um, what you could potentially be doing later down the line, or you're you know knocking something off the list. I don't like this. Let's move on. Um, something that I also think was maybe this was a little bit uh, odd of me to do, but when when I was in grad school, if I was just like. I wanted to think about what would I'd like to do next. I, for whatever reason, always thought uh, a national lab was something I wanted to explore. So oh, I decided to like, <laughs> yeah, right. So um, not surprisingly, I ended up at one, but I started by looking at where are they and what do each of them do? And that was like, you know, as simple as an internet search and looking at a map, you know? So <laughs> I, um, I just did a little internet research. Um, and I think, you know, wherever you want to, go, whether it's academia, national lab, or industry, you can do the same sort of thing. Just start looking up web pages, where are places located, and then that'll probably get you thinking along the lines of what's important to you. Is location very important to you? Or above all else, is what you're doing at your job most important? And even just like thinking through those things, like what are your priorities, um, you know, a couple of years from now, 10 years from now, et cetera. 
um, will help you, um, I think, in your career search. Yeah, I totally agree. And as cliche as it might sound, things like informational interviews also and reaching out to folks on LinkedIn and uh, in your professional circle or folks who do similar kinds of jobs is incredibly useful. So people like to talk about their work. Scientists are kind of, they just like to talk in general, especially those who have, yeah. And just, uh, it's quite easy to put up a few questions that are useful uh, for an informational interview. Reach out. There's no harm in sending a professional nice message. What's the worst that could happen? That person might not respond to you. Uh, but then maybe the third or fourth per- person with, and now don't go spamming people, but that, you know, you get what I mean, <laughs> I guess. And then you can start getting a feel of what it's like to work at some of those companies. What are, what's the job behind the title? What does that even mean to be an application scientist or a process engineer or an yeah. R&D yeah. scientist? Uh, it's not like that's part of a traditional academic training and you have to learn it somehow. And like Liz said, information is out there. Reach out to folks, chat with them. That helps a lot. Yeah, and I'll just continue with that too. And just uh, I, much like yourself, Liz, I was like super into wanting to get a, a job in a national lab. To me, that seemed to be, and we're going to go into, I think later, what different types of jobs are. But to me, that was like a nice in-between industry and in-between academia type job that seemed kind of cool. Like you can do a lot of research, but at the same time, you, you um, didn't have to like teach or do anything of that that sort of thing. So I, I, I liked national labs. And what I found was, Typically, you know, you find them at career fairs too. I don't want to say career fair is your only option, but it's it's a nice one that throws everybody in the same room, and they show up. You know, you have people from Sandia and Los Alamos, like especially the big uh, national labs, end up sending people to these job fairs as well. And they, they these companies and these uh, national labs, they're you know they're not dumb. They like to send the younger uh, people that they've just hired that have been in act like who have just finished their phd or 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 maybe just finished it like a two years ago so they're kind of pretty close to where you you where you are now is where they were just a little while ago so it's always great to like talk to them and just say like you know how did you get your job uh where you're where you're working like what, what was your path and uh, you know it doesn't hurt to ask and like Elliot said like you know at worst they won't give you much of an answer but who knows they might say oh this, that's a great question uh answer it somewhat and then say here's my business card Feel free to uh, contact me if you have any other questions. And it's not a bad way to, to learn the path they took there and see if, if it jives with what you want to do as well. It's, I, I, I think just talking to people, uh, unfortunately, I'm not, uh, uh, I would say, you know, media savvy like, uh, like Elias and probably everybody else is here. I'm, I'm terrible at LinkedIn. Like it, I think I was a PhD candidate until like three years ago or something. Like it still said, <laughs> <laughs> like I was like, oh yeah, I should update this thing. Uh, but I'm, I'm terrible, but like per, person to person, I, I, I do all right. And that's kind of what I liked when you'd see these people show up for, you know, job fairs or, you know, or you find out sometimes DuPont's coming over and they're, you know, they're taking interviews and all the older grad students go to these interviews. It's not bad for you to, you know, reach out and just like, hey, can we talk a little bit? And, and you know, for me, that, that works better for me because I'm more of a person to person type. So if, if you are as well, just talk to people and they're, they know what it's like. They were in your shoes just a little while ago, typically. So they're more than happy to help, I think. So today we're going to give an overview about a range of different types of careers that one could have. We're going to talk a bit about a traditional academic career, about industry jobs, different types and what they're like. 
We're going to talk about careers in national labs or other federal or state uh, labs, uh, types of research institutions, private or public. We're going to talk about uh, maybe jobs related to science policy or law or patent law. Uh, but let's start with one that's maybe less talked about, but quite an intriguing prospect for folks coming out of a graduate degree, which is starting your own company, a startup company. And uh, I know yeah. some on the panel have some experience with that kind of stuff. Well, What's it like to work in a startup company? I actually have started a, a company myself. And yeah, and it's it's very exciting because, you know, it's it's just myself and that's it. Like it's it's a. There's, there's nothing much to it. Although it's a, the name may or may not have to do with a uh, evil Marvel superhero bunch of people that are made up of evil scientists and engineers that are trying to take over the world. But, you know, uh, it, that's that's besides the point. But honestly, like, uh, <laughs> we're working, uh, like, to me, like, uh, a startup, that is not uh, by any means, like, something that's... Um, I. Uh, outside the realm of like a normal uh, possibility, because uh, as you, you, when you come with, uh, especially if your PhD works, uh, like, like Rajan said, uh, actually produces something that uh, the market can see as a, as, as something that is necessary or disrupts some some current technology. Most schools um, have really gotten into this uh, mindset of commercializing what is being produced in the lab, because it really is beneficial for them. Like, mostly these these uh large large schools with big endowments and you know like all the big ones they started doing this quite a bit and then everybody was like hey this is a great idea and now everybody's trying to get into this 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 commercialization push because it's it's nice what it does is it tells incoming undergraduate students hey we're not just scientists here we like we can actually do science that like leads to actual um you know actual products and commercialization and then you know, it's beneficial for everybody because a startup coming out of a university can tap uh, current students for interns and to, to, and then it works both ways. You you get like a steady supply of people. The the Usually the institution has labs already set up so you can use them at cost sometimes. And, and so like, you know, it's one of these situations where the the university's notoriety can increase from, from your startup taking off. So everybody's kind of interested in making this happen. And and the university has their own legal team usually, so they can kind of help with the patents and and usually the university will will do the patent. But and they'll and which is nice because you know a patent is 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 no good if you can't enforce it. And if you're just a little guy with a startup, it's really tough to uh, have to launch a lawsuit against someone who's infringing on your patent. Whereas the university can kind of do that uh, better. So it, it's again it's one of these things where it can work for both people involved. So it there's a lot of I, I from my university I saw a lot of people not a lot but like I saw some people go into uh, starting their own startups like straight out of straight out of a PhD and it definitely can be done and you know and then you can tap on you know if you need a business guy or a marketing person you can tap those types of um, degree holders at the institution or even people like pursuing that degree uh, be, you know, so it's like this wonderful perfect uh, fertile ground for growing a startup. And, and I think, uh, that's definitely a viable course to go. If, if you're interested in the more business side of things, of course, you have to have a, you know, uh, an entrepreneurial spirit and be willing to take like, like Roger said, a larger than typical risk. I mean, it's, it's easier to go, not easier, I would say, but it's less risky to go to, uh, you know, work for like a large company, 
uh, uh, than to start up your own company yeah. because they, you know most of them end up you know not working. So, but it, it can be a fun ride depending on who you are. It's worth mentioning that federal resources exist to tap into again, yes. such as uh, you know all the federal granting institutions that I think I'm not sure about the numbers, but that have a research budget of more than $100 million annually, they kind of have to give a small percentage of that, at least something like 3 or 3.5% towards private sector startups, like uh, stuff that are often called small business innovation and research grants, SBIRs. Correct. And, uh, you know, for someone on the outside looking in, you would often be surprised at how relatively easier it is to secure those kinds of grants, and they're good money compared to if you're actually in a, a professor uh, who's also looking for a traditional grant from the National Science Foundation, for example. They have a better success rate of approval because that's what the federal government is interested in. It's fostering these innovation ideas. Uh, and if you have a science or STEM PhD, then that gets you even further. And there are multiple phases you would go through. And you know maybe maybe someone has better numbers, but... I've read something like in the order of 150K uh, up to in subsequent phases, if you pass to the next phases up to a million dollars, which is decent, you know, for some kinds of businesses that goes a long way. And so it's something to play with as well. Yeah. And it's not only the the federal government that really tries to incentivize this, also the local governments, state governments, uh, city governments, they want to see jobs created there. So to them, this is investing in a company that that's going to, potentially blow up it's a lottery ticket that like you know for them it's like they're sure. they're putting money into all kinds of projects hoping that that you know it brings jobs it brings opportunity and why not take a bet on someone who's a local phd student from one of your local universities that has a great idea like there there's a lot of support for this kind of thing it's just one of these weird things that everybody seems to support it's like everyone thinks small business uh they're what you know keeps the economy humming there so there's a lot of opportunity for this kind of thing if you're willing to, you know, go in into this somewhat risky water and kind of have a, an ability to uh, and 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 a want to deal with many different problems and things that come up and you know wear many hats and but if you're this type, I mean, it, it's not a bad idea to to start thinking about it early and then maybe take some business classes while while you're at uh, pursuing your PhD. That this is often an option for a lot of people. And I know a lot of the people who who went this route did this very thing because we have this great business school at, at Cornell where I did my PhD. And, you know, you could take these these courses and they're free for grad students. So it's like, why not? You have like this world-class education. And this is true wherever you go. Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't matter. Like universities have business schools. So you're going to be able to like learn the, the lingo, the jargon, the, the, the way markets work. And, and you can kind of you know, be more prepared for it. Uh, and then there's, there's, there's sometimes this entrepreneurial clubs you can join. There's a huge, you know, it's one of these things where everybody wants it to happen. So like, it's almost, there's a lot of opportunity for you there if you want to go this route, I think. Yeah, before coming to the US, I never knew the magic of those two words, small business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's, so, there's so many words. What about uh, synergistic uh, flow of... Of, uh, of, you know, oh God, yeah, don't get me started. Yeah, elbow drop of value proposition on your your pain points. And yeah, forget it. Like we can just just go off the rails on this. 
Great. So that's kind of an overview of startup companies and definitely worth looking into if you like, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit and willing to take risks. Let's start to delve deeper into other career prospects. I wanted, you know, numbers are kind of difficult to come by, but uh, so we found a couple interesting statistics. Um, in 2013, when the national unemployment rate was something like 7.5%, uh, PhD engineers had an unemployment of in the order of 2.1%. So, I mean, obviously, we know as graduate students that jobs are tough to come by, but at the same time, it's not a bleak outlook. There are jobs out there. You can find employment. Admittedly, among starting uh, as a first job for PhD engineers, something like 38% did a postdoc, which most people think of as a transitional job. But still, there are positions out there. It's, it's, uh, you can make steps along the way to secure a job and you know get, get, uh, get a great career out of your PhD. And we found that the American Society of Mechanical Engineers and uh, Civil Engineers. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is a 2012 uh, survey. They found that the average starting salary for a PhD engineer is 80K. Uh, this is 2013, 2012 number. It's a bit less for scientists, as you know, but uh, it's, it's not bad for STEM majors in general. And obviously, this is a bit of a bimodal distribution, one would think. If your starting job was more on the postdoc kind of end, it's still lower than that, but... The private sector, it's higher, but that's what we will talk more about. Oh, Lou, sorry. Yes, I I saw Lou. Yeah, I wanted to give you my favorite joke ever. Uh, Go for it. Yes, that's what I live for. Yeah, what's the difference between a a, a PhD chemist or a PhD chemical engineer? Okay, I have many guesses, but what's the difference? About 15, 20,000 a year. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. yeah. If you have engineer at the end of your name, it's like, woo, rocking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just to give some perspective, so jobs are out there, but obviously we have to work hard for them. Things would not be, it's not as if you do a PhD and great, you're set for life immediately without even trying. It's, yeah. it's not like that for sure. Spoiler, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we wanted to talk a bit about the famous position that you know is generally thought of as the traditional career, even though it's uh, not as traditional as one would think, is the academic tenured research professor. Yeah. And again, looking at the numbers, apparently less than 0.5% of STEM PhDs become research professors. So, uh, so if we go back to the Robert Frost analogy, it's definitely the road less traveled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although it's we still like call a, it traditional. It's a road that is barricaded with barbed wire and like steel fencing. And if you really want to take that road, you gotta you, you gotta fight like to get through that road. It's it's a tough it's a tough road. It's a tough road to get involved and, with. Yeah, and hey, it's a great job if it's your dream job. Sure, I mean, sure. we're not the ones to stop you, but it's important to know the numbers. You know, this is not. 20% or 30% of PhDs get that kind of job, let alone 50 or 60%. This is less than 1% getting tenure track, full professor positions at research institutions. So uh, everyone often thinks they're, they're the one to beat the market, uh, you know, in stocks and in everything else. And hey, maybe, you know, obviously you're confident of your skills and maybe it's a thing for you and it's a dream job, go for it. 
but it's important to have the context in mind and understand the market. This is not the traditional career that one would think going into a PhD program. It's a tough get. It really is. But it's a great job. Although, if you like it, it, go for it. although it's good to like mention that, you know, yes, less than 0.5% become research professors, but I mean, that's also considering not everybody wants that job. So it's not like you're competing True. against a lot of people for sure, but it's not like, you know, it, it's not like, uh, you know, the acceptance rate is 0.5%. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's the only gig in town. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's not the only gig in town. Um, yeah. About the comp- competitive, competitive rates, uh, the applicants per position for these kinds of jobs is between 150 and 250 applications. So it's a tough market to break into. Yeah. And also, and it's not like you know everybody who's applying has a PhD. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they read the job description. Yeah. It's not like you know you're gonna, you know, there's you know five qualified people and a bunch of slackers. <laughs> but you know about that, it's it's quite interesting the dynamics because often there are you know those five or ten super candidates, okay, sure. and obviously yeah. they get to travel the whole circuit, so they get invited to all those interviews. Oh yeah. So right, and then. Uh, yeah, I've been involved. So, I mean, I went to a few interviews uh, and some universities, this was, you know, in the previous, in this application cycle, mm-hmm. and some universities gave offers to other candidates and some universities ended up just canceling the position because of COVID-19. Right, right. But, I mean, just looking at the pool of candidates that went for interviews, because sometimes you can see that from the seminar department listing, uh, I mean, some incredible candidates and you keep seeing the same names often. I mean, yes. some really talented uh, mm-hmm. folks and many times the same uh, person gets an offer from multiple institutions oh, man. and they, ha- they can only take one. What a, and then, what a, geez, yeah, what it's, it's really tough. What a, what a yeah. Thing. And then uh, what ends up is maybe the committee does not want necessarily to go to their, say, third or fourth option. And so then the search is discontinued until the next year. So right. not only is it 150 to 250 applicants per position, oh sometimes God. that's not enough, apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to find the right candidate. It's a tough market to break into. And so oh, it's, just, just to keep in mind of, of the odds there. So. I, didn't, I didn't really even think about that, like how they might, yeah, they, it's not like, um, you know, they just keep going down the list. Because I've seen... I, I kind of just like keeping my tabs on things like what's going on or whatever. And so at one point I signed up for like alerts on um, like academic jobs. I've just been seeing the same thing for a while. And I'm like, they haven't found someone. Come on. But it's probably because of this reason, you know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank yeah, you for be picky, that. I think I mean, they, they, because they're going to yeah. get 200 applicants. So they're like, eh, no, nah, we'll, we'll, we'll send them another We'll send another job uh, posting and we'll get another 250, you know, applications. Right. In a year, I guess, you know, in like the world of research, maybe, you know, or like at least an, ac- you know, an academic career path. It really isn't a terribly long time, so it's probably better to wait. Yes. Anyway, I'm maybe digressing. Yeah, you, you know, about those dynamics, on the other end of thing, it's uh, the committee is dreading a failed search. They don't want to go back to the dean and tell them, hey, this search didn't work. Yeah, I see. And so... Uh, so it's not as if they're planning it that way, but then if that's the decision that comes out from the department, like the faculty, it's not just the committee that ends up deciding, everyone in the faculty gets to vote. 
So uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's a strange dynamic and it's probably going to get even tougher in the next year or two oh, yeah. with searches being on hold and hiring freezes and things like that. Yeah, in, in my uh, in my department, I you could always tell when someone was uh, going for a job because we'd have invited speakers at our seminar series, right? And then you like it didn't, you know. I guess we're we're somewhat smart because you know we're like scientists, like our PhD students. So I guess we we kind of every once in a while we stumble upon some smart move, and like we realize that hey, some of these seminar people that are giving seminar talks are being recorded by a camera in the back and some are not. And then we're like, ah, so we know who the candidates are. And we just <laughs> we figured out, like, as soon as we saw the camera go in the back, it's like, oh, this, this guy wants a job here. Like, you can tell. And, you know, and then and you and you saw some really impressive candidates. You're just like, they're like, yeah, I, I solved all these problems and I'm like, awesome and it's great. And you're just like, and you're thinking, how is it, like, technically when i finish here i can be one of these people but it doesn't seem at all possible like they're just so accomplished and so <laughs> insanely good at what they're doing but it's it's uh so yeah it's it's it's, it's definitely a tough get and, a, and a, an amazing job but uh but it, but but liz you're right like it's if you like it right like i i you know i never really wanted a job in academia when i was starting my phd so i was like no i definitely that's not for me but like slowly, it sounds more and more enticing as, as the years go by. I'm like, yeah. I think by the time I get to uh, be an old old person, I'll just I'll I'll embrace the role of a curmudgeonly old professor, you know. And I'll just like, then then I'll be like, okay, now I'm ready to start like my tenure track at age sixty, and just be like, it's like, and just be the guy, the old guy who yells at the students, is like, ah, you're old person. Like, sounds sounds like a fun. That to me sounds kind of fun. I don't know. I would say. If you are interested in academia position, then obviously a postdoc is a must today. Uh, and then it's the best thing to do is to try to get the best possible postdoc position at the best possible institution with the best possible research group producing the best possible papers. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, as we said, there are many criteria for selection and all of those things I just mentioned are part of it. So you yeah. want to maximize your chances. And we Although I will, I will add um, a, a postdoc doesn't have to be that it can be uh, a position that is just a holding position until you figure, like, maybe you don't know, uh, maybe I want to go into industry, maybe I don't. And of course, Ellis is right. Like if you want to go into academia, you have to pick uh, a really prestigious postdoc with uh, someone who's famous and some kind of research group that cranks out tons of papers. But if you're like, ah, I, you know, I don't, I, I think I want to go into industry. I don't know where in industry I want to go or what and you need, like, uh, to, you know, uh, a job for a little while. A postdoc gives you this opportunity that nobody else, hardly anybody else has. You can go anywhere in the world, which is as, as long as you can either speak their language or they speak the same language. It's amazing. You have so much open to you. You could be like, oh, I want to live in, you know, London for like a year. You just find the postdoc somewhere <laughs> in England. I mean, it's honestly like you have this opportunity that like not a lot of people do. And I know it doesn't seem like you're following a career path, but you've got plenty of time to follow a career path. Like if if you want to like live in the south of Spain or 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 some kind of nice area that you've always kind of dreamed of living, like uh, you find a, a nice postdoc somewhere and just, you know and do some really nice work uh build up your resume and get to live in a new place and, and who knows like uh it might lead to a, a different type of opportunity but it it you know i i know this is not usually how a postdoc is is, is pursued like by location but 
but it's 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 one of the I think really nice things about our our type of um, job that we have that that we can find a position just about anywhere uh, based on if your research matches what they're looking for and then you just go there and you live in a new place and it's it's if that's something that's kind of exciting for you that could be something you do until you get a different type of job it's it's not you know that's it's not honestly it's typically used as a stepping stone for academia but it's it's doesn't have to be that as well i mean you can factor in other things that that you know uh maybe are more important to you you know i think another um again, less traditional kind of like postdoc um, or a way to look at a postdoc is um, like a job in which you can explore a totally new area of science. And, you know, just just because you did something in your PhD or like whatever grad school was like for you, that doesn't mean you have to be doing that forever. Like there are plenty of people who do something in grad school. They do a PhD or, or sorry, they do a postdoc in that same area and then they get a professorship in that same field. Like that's, you know, kind of a straight and narrow path. But a lot of the time that's, I mean, I would say most of the time that's not the case. And a postdoc is an opportunity for you to maybe like step outside your comfort zone a little bit, uh, gain new skills, uh, kind of grow your network and get exposure to different lab skills maybe also that you just didn't have even access to previously. Of course, that's dependent on where you work and what you're paid to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's another kind of way to look at a postdoc. You know, if you're if that's an option and you're interested, just go for it. Like we're all here to learn, so why not? I definitely agree with Lou and Liz, but I want to share the opposite perspective for a second. Also, Ooh. if if yeah, sure. If you don't, if if your passion is really not for research and science in a sense, if kind of a PhD is, is almost a means towards a process engineer job or a quote unquote assembly line job or to just a job in the industry, then uh, then the sooner you get to that job in the industry, the better. And if you, if you have the chance to position yourself to skip the postdoc position, then do it that way. You know, companies in many senses prefer a fresh graduate uh, who's gonna is ready to jump into the job market and look people you're driven you're motivated you're smart you're gonna find the job you want uh, so it's not as if it's the end of the world if you go for a postdoc but at the same time other than all the positive attributes of a postdoc that Lou and Liz mentioned if that's not what you're thinking of try to position yourself for an industry job earlier the sooner the better in that sense yeah true yeah that's a very good point and like there, you know, I'm speaking from a point of view where I'm doing a postdoc, right? So that's like, you know, that's kind of my perspective, but I totally agree. Sure, you know, sure, if, sure. if you've decided it's really like, that's not a path you want to go down, then just go for it. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like you're just spinning your wheels. But here's the cool thing about a postdoc, right? It's a temporary position. Everybody knows it is. Mm-hmm. The, the person you're working for, you yourself, it's a temp, it's, it's temporary by design because it's kind of like a placeholder until you get the dream academic job or the dream whatever job or whatever you want. So uh, it's okay to, you know, be looking for a job while you're doing a postdoc. And, you know, it's not like you're doing it in the sneaky fashion because you're, you know, you're working for, 
for your your boss and you're saying, no, oh, I'm looking for this other job. They they kind of expect you to. Like, they <laughs> it's know it's your job to be looking for a job. That's you right, can't be a that's boss. Right. <laughs> so the temporary in nature is kind of nice. Like if you can, yeah. And again, uh, Elias is right. Like if you if you want to work in industry, it's probably best just to go right into it. But if you can't for whatever reason, it's not you know it's not a bad idea to look for a postdoc. And then maybe like let's say develop some skills that that you didn't have in your disposal or, or explore something or and just or maybe like I said like just you know like hey I want to live in the south of France that sounds nice like and uh, and just you know in uh, do it for a little while and then you know six months later you get like a job interview you you, you go to it you kill it and then you get the job and it's not it you know if you're doing a postdoc for several years that that you're you're no longer a recent graduate but if you've a postdoc for six months or so that's you're still pretty much a recent graduate and they're still seeing you as that so that's not you know it's not a bad uh temporary position it's 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 a something that most other jobs don't have is this kind of ability to kind of flex your career a bit like by by just taking a temporary position where everybody knows it's temporary like everyone's like it's like totally aware of it you you, you know you tell your uh your boss that you're working for for your postdoc you're like yeah i have an interview here and i'm if they offer it, I'm taking it. It's like, oh, good luck. You know, hope you get it. You know, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just kind of how it is, you know? And so it, it, it's not a bad thing to, I wouldn't say take advantage of, but it's not a bad thing to, to uh, enjoy the opportunity that this can provide in, in unorthodox ways. And as, as you know, I'm all about unorthodox stuff. So like, that's, right, right. that's, that's the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things are what you make of them and you can definitely have a great enjoyable experience and make it the best possible way for yourself. Okay, so let's also talk about industry positions. Oh yeah. And industry can mean a whole sorts of different things and you know yeah, that's one thing <laughs> to start with. <laughs> but I think one of the first key uh, things we can talk about is do not limit yourself. You have a STEM PhD what companies often see when they see that it means what it means to them is a motivated problem solver who can learn new things. Correct. So yes. do not say, oh, this is not a company that's doing thiol functionalized gold coated carbon nanotubes for storage of, you know, like do not limit yourself that's right. uh, across the board, even uh, for your subfield or even for your field in general. Think of yourself as a problem solver, market yourself that way and find the job you like. Yeah, just to add to that really quickly, that is exactly was my experience. Like I actually, I went to a job fair like towards the end of my PhD and I was just like looking, I, I was like, I, I was super single-minded and focused. I was like, I want a national job, I'm not, sorry, a national lab job and this is what I want and I've wanted it since I started my PhD and that's, like that was kind of my target. And then, you know, as I'm wandering around, I start like, you know, sometimes those lines are full. I'm like, well, let me see what's going on over here. So I went to like uh, the Intel line and and I had never worked in a clean room. I had not done any kind. As a material scientist, Intel likes material scientists because they, most of their problems are materials related. And uh, but, you know, I, I had zero experience working with silicon, working with a clean room, nothing. And I, you know, I started talking to the guy and he's like, he seemed completely un, like as much as I tried to sell that I wouldn't be a good candidate for, for, for his, uh, uh, for his company. He was like, he's like, what have you done? I'm like, well, I, I, I did a lot of electron microscopy while I was at, uh, Cornell and I did, a, and he liked the fact that I jumped into things that I wasn't processes, machines that I, I wasn't never had 
any experience using. And I just jumped in and became the person who was doing that for my group. And he's like, that's great. That's what we're looking for. And I was like, yeah, but I, and I was like, I have not worked in a clean room. He's like, I don't care. Like, uh, I'm putting, you know, we're going to have like a onsite interview with you. I'm like, okay. And I had an onsite interview with them and it led to, uh, sorry, uh, onsite at the school. And then it led to an onsite interview at Intel. And it was like really cool. Like, and, and I was like, and I, at the point, at that point, I had no other job offers. And I'm like, I probably should take this. This is a really nice job. And, and, and my, my advisor was like, he's like, this is a job you need to take. It's a good company. They, they, they pay really well. You, you can set yourself up really nicely. And I'm like, I know it's, but like, no, I think I still want to try for a national lab. He's like, oh, wait, you're crazy. Like he was like, just kind of upset with me. He was like, he's like, I feel like I, you're this like kid who wants to do what he wants to do. And like, like, and my advisor was really awesome. Like he was very much like looking out for my best interest. Uh, but I was like, no, I think I'm going to say no. I, even though it's very tempting, it was very tempting. I was like, you know, who knows? I, right now you could be talking Lou, the Intel guy who's like cranking out my, you know, microchips. but like, uh, it, it was, it was a nice, and they really did a nice job of, uh, I was like, Oh, I could see myself here. But then I was like, no, I know what I want to do. I want to work with the, the research I want to do. And I thanked them very much. And it was great. It was a great experience, but like, uh, but it's exactly what Elliot said. Like, they're not looking for like somebody whose research matched up perfectly with what they were doing. They just want people who can solve problems, who are smart, who can learn things, like they're going, they, they'd rather have a PhD handling all that than someone who's not a PhD. So it's, it, you can find, you can find all kinds of jobs that you don't think you're qualified for. And it's, 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 it's pretty cool. Like it, you have a lot of power with this degree. And one thing I want to add to that is um, something I didn't mention earlier that would be a good um, resource if you're like, you know, interested in exploring options is um, Elias mentioned, you know, just into like kind of interviewing people. What was, I forget the word you used. Informational. Informational. Uh, it gives us this, you know, vibe, like you know what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. Um, it would be more helpful if I remembered that term, but anyway, um, you know, lean on the faculty members in your department or at your institution in general, because if you look around, maybe a handful of your professors, um, have stayed in a very like academic track, maybe, but most likely the faculty in your department is kind of a mix of people who have a bunch of different experiences. Uh, like my advisor, for example, worked at GE, uh, the GE Research Center. So he had um, experience that was distinctly different than, you know, the guy down the hall who uh, never even left academia, out, you know, not even for a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> So th these, you know, these people that you can ask about experiences and what other, you know, different jobs might be like are right there in front of you. Um, and also I'm, I'm noticing, um, which, you know, maybe I should have noticed earlier, but um, this, you know, kind of trajectory of going to, uh, going to a national lab, maybe working there for a couple years or maybe even 10 or 20 years and then jumping back to academia that seems yeah. even like pretty standard at this point. So if you're interested about national labs, probably someone on your campus has that experience. Yeah, yeah, good call. So job types in industry have a whole spectrum ranging from more technical jobs such as R&D, product development, uh, process engineers and such. And then slowly on that spectrum towards less technical, things like project management, market analyst, consulting jobs. And uh, really, 
you could slowly transition to any kind of job. And the percentage of, say, the business or the marketing component uh, is different in these. And, you know, for, for better or for worse, many times less technical often means more money, in a sense. That's the world we live in. Uh, but but depends on what you like as well and how you shape your career to be. On the other end of this, on the more research-heavy end, I mean, it's worth remembering. Many people prefer to stay in academia because of the research itself. And I, I'm the first to say that sounds very appealing to me. And yeah. that's why you know I'm going through this process like we just talked earlier. But it's important to say that you know, most R&D funding in the U.S. comes from the industry, something like 70%, according to a 2018 report from AAAS. Bring in the uh, comes from industry. Look at you. I'm yeah, like, I know. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's, right. uh, I'm impressed. Yeah, you know, you know after... of Luis is impressed. I'll tell you that. Right? <laughs> you know, after uh, the Qualls episode where I realized midway through the episode that I haven't even done the Qualls, I can't... <laughs> I kind of started preparing for this stuff. <laughs> yeah, but it's, uh, I mean, R&D in the private sector is different in nature and type and many things than R&D in university or a national lab, but it's still research-based. So and maybe in future episodes, we can, if we decide to do a series on career pathways, we can delve deeper into this kind of data. But you can find research, curious, driven jobs in the industry as well, is our bottom line message here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you can even, uh, well, I don't know if this is one of the things we're going to hit, but um, you can even work, uh, as a PhD, you can go into government jobs that are not typical uh, jobs that you think of scientists, because they need scientists everywhere. You can be working as a forensic science in, in a lab. I know someone who, who got her PhD and is now doing, is going that career track. Um, I mean, FBI, uh, the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation needs forensic scientists all the time. I mean, th- a lot of crimes get, you know, uh, um, handled uh, using scientific principles. So, you know, your, your, your degree and your expertise doesn't have to be just because I can't even remember what you were talking about, Elias, thiol, functional, <laughs> carbon nanotubes, I can't remember what it was, like, I, whatever you... Whatever you're working on, uh, as as amazing as it sounds, um, it doesn't. It you know, if that's of course, if that's if that's your passion and your complete, I want to work on this forever, the rest of my life, then probably a career in academia or someplace where you can uh, enjoy this type of work would be great. But it's you have skills that you have you have ability to use characterization techniques. You you have experience using various lab pieces of lab equipment that makes you valuable all, all across the board in, in all kinds of uh, jobs. And we've all watched CSI and the oh. data and that kind of works just so clean always, oh, the yeah, mass specs yeah, yeah. or oh, yeah, perfect yeah. Gaussians. And... And, and you have, uh, like, I think something like uh, $50 billion budgets for every uh, department. Yeah, and, and everyone is good looking in that yeah, yeah, department. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great <laughs> actors, good looking. <laughs> Honestly, if, if you don't have a, a modeling profile, don't apply to one of those jobs. <laughs> they only take, they only take uh, uh, models. <laughs> so, so let's talk more about national labs and government organizations and these kinds of research facilities. So Liz, you've mentioned a few times already your work at the national lab. So for someone who's done research as a grad student in university, what's different about the national lab? Sure. Um, yeah, so I... I've worked at 
two labs that um, you could kind of consider national labs, although they're all like a little bit different in terms of um, kind of how they're operated and stuff. But um, so I would say the biggest difference to me is that um, there, there can be very like fundamental research that occurs at national labs for sure. That's there. Um, but the I think a big difference is at a national lab and this will change depending on the national lab you're at um, and your funding agency is the connection to either application or sponsor, I think is much stronger than in an academic environment where maybe your advisor is more, you know, tightly linked to proposal writing um, and, you know, updates to the to whatever funding agency might be um, uh, funding your research. Um, so I think that's a, a big difference. And why is that important? It's important because instead of um, like there being this sort of more exploratory nature of work that I think is a little bit more celebrated at university, there's much more of a um, push to you know, uh, connect your experiments to deliverables that directly address your um, objectives and, you know, um, questions you wanted to answer as stated in your, you know, original proposal. And what is your sponsor, sponsoring agency um, really interested in? I think that I, I would say that is like probably the biggest thing to me, Makes biggest sense. difference. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think one key difference is that they're often, maybe a little bit longer term, higher risk, higher reward type of project. And by definition, it's not something that could be done by a PI and a student because otherwise the funding agency would just say, hey, we have these awesome universities. Why not do this work there instead? So, right, and that would be cheaper. Exactly, right? Yeah. So by nature, they're higher risk multidisciplinary projects, which is kind of a fun environment to work in at some level. Oh, yeah. And maybe it's a little bit more professional and less educational. And of course, we need both models, the university model and the national lab model to solve different types of problems and to train people and all that good stuff. But it's a different vibe. And one thing I realize is that, you know, if you're a graduate, senior level graduate student, towards the end of your residency and your program, you're kind of now the big fish in that group. You know where things are, you know the experiments, the simulations, you have your own system. Uh, you know how it works. And then when you go towards a national lab, you're now again learning. Yeah. Everyone is more senior to you immediately as soon as you right. enter again. Right. And yeah. So you raise your game in a sense and you learn from everyone. It's kind of a nice dynamic. Uh, it's, it's, it's worth considering these options. And I should say for a foreign national as well, uh, options exist at national labs. It depends on the type of project, but there are many options and often they come with pretty good benefits and compensation. And importantly for foreign nationals, uh, they help you with your immigration status. Although that is becoming more and more prevalent in university postdocs as well, which is nice. So uh, because people might be worried about that component, do not disregard this option. It's a nice option. Look into it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I would just add to that, too, that, um, uh, you know, the, one of the major differences between, um, uh, I would say, uh, research that happens in academia and research that happens at national labs is 
in academia, it's like what the the driving force for the research is what the PI, the principal investigator, is deciding that is important. And they will put together a research team of students and postdocs and whatever and, and push the, the, the motivation is to expand a knowledge base, right, uh, for the most part. And sure, they can have applications that are, you know, that can affect national policy and whatnot. Uh, but at the same time, you, you are really, as a PI for one of these uh, academic institutions, you're really pushing the, 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 the boundaries of, of science and, and what we know. Whereas a national lab, you're, it's like you're hitting things that the federal government has decided are really important for, for the nation, right? So if you're working at a US national lab, you, let's say a Department of Energy lab, they can be like, okay, batteries are really important to us now. We need a lot of research on batteries. And so, and that work did happen a lot in, in, in national labs. And, and a lot of the reason why we have lithium-ion batteries now is because of work that occurred in national lab because they prioritized it. So you are, you're kind of fulfilling a national mission uh, that, and using science to do that versus expanding out uh, the breadth of science and, and human scientific knowledge. So it's a, it's a bit different. You're, you may be even working on the same exact work in both, but the, the reason behind that is a little different. Like one is, is like the U.S. government has decided this is important, and the other, you yourself decided, hey, this is important for for humanity to know this, so I'm going to push into this. You know, I think. Yeah, great description. So there are two more career tracks we wanted to uh, kind of describe a little bit. One is relatively similar, which is working at research institutes, and these could be private, although that, in a sense, maybe, or maybe I'm being too unfair. It's a bit of a dying breed, you know. There used to be Bell Labs and IBM, and those used to be huge. And now there's much less of that kind of private institute, and R&D has kind of worked its way into smaller departments of existing companies. But they still exist, and a great example is Janelia, who've done that really impressive work and Nobel Prize-winning work on, say, things like fluorescent microscopy. And so these kinds of positions exist still. Yeah, I work at one of these. Yeah, and of course, there are many of those really cool institutes that are affiliated with universities as well. And so, Lou, you've had some experience with that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like, to me, I found it to be very, I mean, every every institute will be different, of course, and has different um, uh, overriding mission statements. But but by and large, it's, it's, a, it's a place where you can do research um, that, and in an academic institution where you don't have to teach. So it's very simple. Like I, it's appealing to me for the same reason that National Lab was appealing to me because I, I really didn't want to teach. Um, uh, not that I dislike it. It's just, I actually like it. It's kind of fun, but uh, but it takes you out of the lab. And I just like, I'm a lab rat. I love being in the lab. I like cranking out. <laughs> the lab. That's like my favorite thing in the universe. So to me, it's just like, ah, that's too much of a time suck. I'd rather like, you know, be, be concentrating heavily on just cranking out science in the lab. And so that's why I like, a national lab because it was like as researchy as you can get without uh, going for an academic position, and I think a research institute kind of fulfills the same thing for me. And and uh, definitely UDRI does. And you know, there's other examples like um, like MIT has their own research institute called Lincoln Labs, and that's a place where uh, I I don't know how they're affiliated with them. I, I I know for us we're part of the university. Lincoln Labs might be its own entity, might be part of it, but it's definitely. I think MIT is kind of like so these, um, these is a contractor or something. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, I wasn't sure, but the I mean these research institutes definitely 
um, exist. And, and, you know, uh, for, it depends on the type of job you're looking for. But for me, it was like, it was exactly the kind of, it was like a natural progression from national lab to this. And, it, and it was, you know, and of course, every lab has different mission statements and whatnot, but, but, um, or every institute, but uh, at least the way mine is set up is, is really kind of cool. It's very, um, you know, if you, you can do the work you wish to do, as long as you can get it funded, they're fine. So, so that was really appealing for me. And, and, you know, that might be, a, if that kind of thing is appealing, that might be something that's appealing for, for others as well. So Lou, do you get an influx of students from the university? Uh, is yeah, that a good thing? call? Like that's, that's almost the best part. It's like, it's your, you do. Yes, you do to answer your question, but I love <laughs> I, I got that impression from, from, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from your answer. <laughs> Before I get too like excited about it, but yes, definitely. Yes. And definitely that's the best part. You get to work side by side with students um, like you would at some national labs, but at some national labs, they don't have an institute associated with them. So that was something uh, that, that can be lacking there. But, but if, you're, if your research institute is attached to a university, it's great. You can tap these PhD students and, and mentor them and, uh, and you know, look at our wonderful uh, uh, episode on mentoring for, for, for more on that. <laughs> but but I, I, to me, that's like so exciting to, to, to see the scientific process happening through a young researcher's eyes uh, is very exciting because you, you you see them get just as excited as you were when or hopefully for everybody is like when you're just starting your PhD it's like really cool to see them start to grasp things and start to and start to become scientists like they 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 start to leave um, their undergraduate cocoon and kind of morph into a beautiful scientific butterfly. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's right. Make another analogy. But, but it's uh, but it's great. You watch them progress and like learn and then and start to ask the right questions. And then, you know, where you're like, oh, man, that's a really good question. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to it, but that's a great question. Let's figure it out. You know, so so, yes, you do get to uh, work with students and it's awesome. Uh, that's that was a big draw. Fantastic. And I guess the last field of work that you wanted to hit on, hit on is jobs related to law and uh, policy. And these are really two distinct uh, types of, you know, jobs or job categories. In law, it would be something like inter intellectual property or patent lawyer. And I mean, obviously, this is the kind of thing that you either absolutely adore and love or completely hate. So, yeah. so for some people, they would love it. And obviously, it's an important job. And all companies want to protect, protect their copyright, and their intellectual property, and all researchers need that kind of uh, enterprise as well. So, and it could be also rewarding financially, but you have to like it, I guess. And then uh, the other, you know, kind of job category is related to science policy and this is, again, incredibly important and becoming more and more prominent. There are, there's kind of a really nice list of fellowships now, for example, from the AAAS for uh, encouraging folks to do a science policy postdoc or a position. Uh, you go to DC and you're involved with some project, for example, and uh, related to science advocacy or just advocating for science-informed policy. And uh, you can find uh, some there's more and more of these positions and people enjoy them. If you want to try something new, it's a nice career trajectory to tap into. And we would recommend going to uh, this website from the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology, FASEB, I guess. Oh, just, and, just right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
you have a consonant vowel, consonant vowel, consonant. So <laughs> the best you could ever hope for. <laughs> and they have a page on science policy fellowships. I mentioned the AAAS one. There's also a relatively new one called the Fellowship for, uh, it's called Tech Congress, which is focused on communicating more advanced knowledge in the tech industry to policymakers. That sounds kind of cool. And yeah, I mean, you know, there's people who are the right people for these kinds of jobs and they're obviously very important. So if it's your thing, go for it. Yeah, you will be dictating the policy that the rest of us are, are trying to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure dictating is the best word to use. Shaping. Yes. Shaping. Yeah. You always have like the right word for like for for my. I know. Rude attempt to to, to to describe. So what are any kind of follow-up points that uh, any of you wanted to add? I think we had a pretty nice episode today just with an overview of all these kinds of jobs and it's maybe a lot of information to take in I, from one I, episode. I, I will add yeah. to one, one aspect of your law and policy. I, I recently just uh, was talking to a, a patent attorney and I found out that you know within his patent office, there's like a bunch of PhDs that like, kind of went the law route as well. And like, as he's describing, like everybody who's working in his law office, I was like, dude, like you can just start a research group. What are you doing? Like, just forget law. I just plop down in the lab and just crank out some science. Like it was, it's really, it's, it's amazing <laughs> how you can really uh, use that as, as a way to get into like, into law. Like there's, there's, and because they need people who understand patents and understand you know the science behind these patents it's for, for, for these technical patents so it makes perfect sense but it's it's a real viable route that I, I was definitely not aware of when i started my phd i was like this is great like, there's a lot of things you can do yeah absolutely so i mean this was just an overview of course you know the do not let anything we said limit you just find your own career trajectory and go for it and uh, maybe in future episodes, we will be expanding more based on the thousands and thousands of emails we're getting. We're going to try to oh, group yeah. them into tables and charts to see where the excitement is and do later episodes. Yes, every so, email you send us, you're competing with 249 other emailers that are trying to get our attention as well. So good luck. We'll do our best. We'll see what the committee thinks. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a failed question search for this <laughs> year. <laughs> Seriously, try again next send year. <laughs> yeah. Send all of them. Send send emails. And in any case, it was fun to meet again. Catch us next week for a new episode of What's the PhD? And keep rocking. Right on.